The following Bible lesson and other Bible information can be found on the official Dean Bible Ministries website. That's found at www.deanbible.org. That's www.deanbible.org. Dr. Dean is the pastor of West Houston Bible Church. And now, here's Dr. Dean with the Bible lesson. This is the record that God has given to us eternal life, and this life is in His Son. He who has the Son has the life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have the life. He who believes on Him is not condemned, but he who believeth not is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. For there is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing is able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. For of him and through him and to him are all things, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Before we begin our study this morning, we need to make sure that we're in fellowship, ready to study God's Word, filled with the Spirit. The Holy Spirit is our teacher. He is the one who helps us to store doctrine in our soul so that we can recall it later, apply it to the proper situation. We're out of fellowship, then we are uh, quenching that ministry of God the Holy Spirit. And though we may learn things academically, it does not accrue to our spiritual benefit or spiritual growth. So we spend a few moments in silent prayer to use 1 John 1, 9 if necessary, and then I'll open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you that we have this opportunity to study your word, to be have our thinking illuminated by the absolute truth that you have uh, inscripturated for us in the canon of Scripture, that we might have this to teach us how to think as you think, to interpret the events of our lives according to your absolute standard, and that we might see how to how to have salvation and how to enjoy that salvation to its fullest as we advance to spiritual maturity. To understand that our purpose is to grow to spiritual maturity and to glorify you in time and in relation to the angelic conflict and that we do that by learning the word under the filling ministry of God the Holy Spirit. Father, we pray that we would be challenged by these things, that we would be willing to listen to what your word says and that we would be willing to submit to its authority. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Open your Bibles with me to 1 John chapter 1. 1 John chapter 1, and we are wrapping up the initial paragraph in this epistle. At the end of the, this paragraph, starting in verse 3, we read, What we have seen and have heard, we proclaim to you also, that you also might have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. And these things, that is, the doctrines that are covered in this epistle, specifically what he has just said in those first three verses, these things we write so that our joy might be complete, made complete. And this is the message that we have heard from him and announced to you that God is light, and in him there is no darkness at all. Now, verse 3, as we have seen, it's talking about the message, the apostolic message of salvation, of the spiritual life. Not just how to enter into salvation, but how to enjoy the benefits of salvation, how to advance to spiritual maturity. First John is a commentary, a development, an expansion on the upper room discourse that is covered in the Gospel of John between John 13 and John 17. There Jesus outlined the basic principles, the basic parameters of spiritual life and spiritual growth. The vocabulary of John, of the upper room discourse and the vocabulary in the epistle of 1 John is extremely close. There are many parallels. The same words are used, the same concepts are discussed. 
So we, we are building our understanding of how to live the spiritual life as opposed to how to gain the spiritual life. And these are important issues that must be addressed in, in understanding anything. If you approach a piece of literature thinking it's talking about one thing and it's talking about something else, then you'll completely misunderstand what is being talked about. We've all had that experience. You talk to somebody at work or some friend and they start talking about something they did over the weekend. And you think they're talking about going to some show or some movie or some restaurant. And that's you immediately make a guess. You think this is what they're talking about. And as they make more and more statements, all of a sudden you realize there's a disconnect there somewhere that, 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 that you, you thought they were talking about one thing, but it doesn't seem to make sense in light of what they're saying. And so in your thinking, you're not even aware that you're doing this. You automatically go back and revise that initial guess as to what they were going to talk about until what they have said starts to make sense. And I said, oh, oh, you, I realize now you went to a football game, not a basketball game. Or, or you were thinking you went, you went out to eat and you didn't just go to a movie. Whatever it is, suddenly you realize what, what it is that they're talking about. And the same thing happens in interpretation. And the, any pastor, anybody who's reading Scripture or reading anything as far as that goes, is going to sit down and make certain assumptions at the beginning as to what the writer is really talking about here. And the same thing is true for understanding this epistle. And this is one of the factors of getting into the subject of interpretation. And as the last, I think it's the last couple of weeks, I have begun each of our uh, uh, expositions of 1 John with a review of basic principles of interpretation. I'm doing this at this point because there is so much disagreement about this epistle, number one, and there has come to be a debate, although we are not touched by it in this congregation. It has touched others who do get tapes. Uh, there has come to be a debate among some in uh, what we have come to call the doctrinal churches as to whether or not 1 John 1, 9 actually means that Christians are supposed to confess their sins in order to be in fellowship. And uh, I don't want to spend a whole lot of time refuting that, but there are those in broader Christian circles who have taught that at times past and there are certainly some theological systems that have different approaches to 1 John chapter 1. And I want you to understand why we say what we say, why I'm teaching the, and interpreting the Scriptures the way I'm interpreting it. There are different principles, canons. A canon is a rule of interpretation. The first canon of interpretation is that Scripture should be interpreted on the basis of a lit- literal plain meaning of Scripture. That means that the Scripture should be taken at face value unless there is some reason indicated in the context why it should be interpreted differently. For example, you open up your Bible and you read an epistle, which is a letter. You know that that's pretty straightforward. It's going to be didactic. It's going to be teaching. It's going to be instructive. If you open up the Psalms, you know by its very nature that it's poetry. And as poetry, the language is going to be used differently. There will be a lot of imagery. There will be a lot of uh, adjectives. There will be uh, metaphors and similes and many different figures of speech. Sometimes words in poetry have different shades of meaning than they do in histor- than, than the same word would have in a historical, legal or epistolary context. So you have to take context into mind. But by saying that we believe in a literal or plain interpretation of Scripture does not mean that we do not believe that there are figures of speech, similes, and metaphors in Scripture. In fact, we're going to hit one this, one this morning and understand, and in that we will understand part of the purpose of a metaphor. Uh, so we start off with a literal, plain interpretation of Scripture. All Scripture should be interpreted according to the same literal standard of interpretation, even prophecy. And this is a major problem in prophecy is that there are some groups, some theologians who, and some schools of interpretation that when it comes to prophecy, all of a sudden they introduce a spiritualizing or an allegorical 
method of interpretation. The problem with that is that that doesn't apply to the prophecies that have already been fulfilled. Something on the order of 28 to 30 percent of Scripture was prophetic when it was revealed. About half of that, much of the Old Testament, has already been fulfilled. Prophecies regarding the fall of many of the Old Testament nations, prophecies regarding the fall of of the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom, those have already been fulfilled. First Advent prophecies about the coming of the Messiah have already been fulfilled. How were they fulfilled? When Micah 5.2 says that out of Bethlehem of Frata the Messiah would come, does that mean that, oh, well, just in Judea somewhere, generally speaking, somewhere south of Jerusalem? No. It means that in Bethlehem he would be born. How was he born? He was born in Bethlehem. It's an exact, literal fulfillment. And so if prophecies that have already been fulfilled were fulfilled literally, then we can anticipate that the prophecies that haven't been fulfilled will also be fulfilled in precisely the same uh, literal manner. So the first canon of interpretation is a literal, plain hermeneutic uh, interpretation. Hermeneutic is the technical term for interpretation. The second canon or rule of interpretation is that Scripture will interpret Scripture. We must interpret Scripture in light of other Scripture so that there is a comparison of Scripture to Scripture. Scripture is its best interpreter. In order to understand a passage in Scripture, for example, this morning, we are going to see an example of this in 1 John chapter 1, verse 5. This is the message that we have heard and announce to you that God is light. Now, there are many different things that we can say about light, many different analogies that we can draw from light that do illustrate and, uh, no pun intended, illuminate the uh, metaphor of light for God. For example, we can say that, that, uh, if, that light appears to us to be white. And if you take a prism and you hold it up to the light, you will see that it breaks down into various uh, bands or various colors, uh, uh, various wavelengths. And uh, we can say that just like the, the Trinity, that God is one, and yet there are three distinct personalities in the Trinity, and just as light appears to be one, there are distinct uh, aspects to it. And that would be true. Uh, we could also perhaps talk about light in terms of things such as um, uh, light is a particle theory of light or the wave theory of light. We can talk about light in terms of how it is seen and felt break it down in terms of being calorific, luminiferous, and actinic, and various features like that that do illustrate certain aspects of the Trinity and the essence of God. However, much of that is based on a quantum theory of physics, and I doubt that anybody in the first century understood quantum physics. Uh, the very fact that light could be broken down by a prism wasn't discovered until Sir Isaac Newton in the 17th century, and so nobody in the ancient world understand those physical properties of light. So if we are going to understand a phrase such as God is light, in order to break that down and to properly understand it as it was in the mind of John and in the mind of his first century readers, we don't jump to 16th century, 18th century, or 20th century knowledge in order to uh, understand his meaning. We have to go back into the context of, of his day and of uh, the Old Testament scriptures and the use of light in the Old Testament to understand what he means. So we compare scripture with scripture in order to understand the meaning of the author. The third canon, we interpret scripture in the time in which it was written. The same illustration applies. We don't go into 17th century uh, light theory in order to understand something that was written in the first century that they weren't aware of. We can use it legitimately as an illustration for our own time, but in order to break out the interpretive meaning of the text, we can't do that. There's, remember, there's only one interpretation of any passage. So whenever you say, well, you think, think it means, you hear somebody say, well, there's that interpretation, but this other interpretation works as well you know right away they don't know anything about interpreting things or they're going to be in jail uh, for their for ta uh, unpaid taxes before long. Uh, any text, any text, whether you're talking about a legal document, instructions on uh, putting together a bicycle, 
uh, putting together any kind of a, a piece of furniture. You know, we've all had that experience. You go down to Sam's or Walmart, buy a piece of furniture, come home and try to figure out the, the, uh, the instructions that were written by somebody whose native language is Japanese. <laughs> but there's only one way to interpret it. Any other way, and it doesn't come out looking quite like the picture. So we know that there's any text, biblical text, legal text, Constitution of the United States, whatever it might be, there's only one proper interpretation. And we must interpret that in the time, in light of the time in which it was written. Uh, that leads to the fourth canon, which is to properly understand anything, we must understand the intent of the author. We must understand the intent of the author. Who determines the interpretation of, of a piece of writing? Is it the reader or the writer? This is a fundamental question. As most people in our culture today, and they will say interpretation is determined by the reader. <laughs> Wrong. Once again, my favorite analogy, go back to April 15th. When you fill out your taxes, it doesn't matter what you think those instructions mean. When you get audited, that auditor is not going to care how you felt about those instructions. He is not going to be the least bit concerned what you thought it ought to mean. He's going to tell you what it means and how much you owe in taxes, penalties, and interest. And that applies to all literature. We interpret in the light of the author. Now, the way to get to derive authorial intent, if you don't have the author standing in front of you, to tell you this is why I wrote it, is that you have to study what was written and derive that intent, that purpose, from the contextual clues. So that means you have to study the words. You have to understand what the words meant in that particular time. You have to understand how a word or phrase was used in the uh, first century A.D. Now, in order to do that, sometimes you can do histor historical uh, etymological studies, which means you go back into 5th century B.C., classical Greek, and study the, the history of that phraseology. And sometimes that's illuminating and it's helpful, but frankly, it, Koine Greek was the language of the common man and everyday street language of the 1st century. And the everyday guy on the street really didn't understand how Sophocles used words in 5th century B.C., even though he might use a, use a similar phrase. For example, there is a phrase that still survives in English idiom, and it refers to someone who is in the process of self-destruction or someone who in an argument has uh, created a logical fallacy which has destroyed their own argument, and, it is and the idiom is, well, that person was hoist on their own petard. Now, some of you may have not heard that before. Others of you have. It is an old English idiom. It's found in Hamlet and Shakespeare. And it, uh, I had a philosophy professor who used that all the time. A petard was a word for a, for a hand grenade, a type of grenade that was used that in siege warfare in the Middle Ages, they would go up to the wall of a city and they would dig a hole and they would stick this uh, grenade under the wall and then the uh, uh, grenadier would light the fuse. Now, powder at that time did not always burn at the same rate. So there were times when he would light the fuse and half a second later the petard would explode and he would fly through the air. He would be hoisted on his own petard. So that is where that, what that phrase meant. And I had a philosophy professor who used that all the time as an illustration of bad logic among philosophers when he would say, well, that person was hoisted on their own petard. Several years later, I discovered it came from Hamlet. I did not have to know anything about Hamlet or Shakespeare or Elizabethan English to be able to understand the idiom. But however, once I understood uh, the historical background, the idiom made more sense to me. So we find different idioms in the New Testament that have historical roots in classical Greek and in, in historical Greek, but the readers did not necessarily understand that. Uh, even though the writers might. But we have to understand these things in terms of what the author intended, in terms of the time in which it was written. And then the last principle is we must understand it in terms of theological system. But before we go there, I, I always like to teach you. You see, the pastoral ministry is not just related to uh, understanding the Bible, but showing you how biblical thinking 
should impact and change the way you understand and interpret everyday events in our lives. Now, interpretation is a major battlefield today because the root of interpretation is the, the study of knowledge. See, interpretation is how do you know what a person said? You're focusing on knowing, knowing, knowing. How do you know what they meant? Now, I've just said the principle is authoritarian authorial intent. Now, I've gotten in discussions with folks that think that you interpret the Bible one way and you interpret other things other ways, but they don't understand anything about hermeneutics. Uh, the, one of the greatest textbooks we had in, in, in seminary on hermeneutics was written by the head of an English department at um, a university in Missouri, I believe, and uh, it was not related to the Bible at all. It was just on how to interpret literature. Because interpretation is interpretation, and the uh, literary, whether you're dealing with the literary documents such as the New Testament or uh, Wordsworth or Coleridge or whether you're dealing with Shakespeare, interpretation is interpretation, and the principles are the same. So, but things are changing today, and I've talked in the last couple of weeks of how we, we had a major shift that took place after... Uh, uh, Kant came along, Immanuel Kant, at the end of the 19th century. And Kant came along and said that we can't really know things as they are. You see, up until Kant, even though people disagreed, I mean, you had Calvinists on one hand and Arminians on the other, you had Roman Catholics, you had Protestants, people clearly differed in their interpretation. You had rationalists and empiricists among the philosophers. They had different interpretations. But everybody believed that there was one external unifying knowledge that was knowable. You could know absolute truth. Now, we may disagree what it is, but you could know it. After Kant, nobody believed there was an external objectifiable knowledge that you could know. So that instead of, and, and if there is one external objectifiable knowledge that everybody can know, then your, your options are going to be limited. But, if knowledge is no longer objective but subjective, in other words, if it's no longer an objective truth that you're trying to understand, but it is merely all you can know is your perception, then there's a different perception for every individual. So instead of having maybe a couple of dozen interpretive options, now you have six billion interpretive options. And the standard for understanding anything becomes the individual. And that's what worked itself out in the intellectual community in the 19th century and gave rise to what is known as, as uh, Protestant liberalism, you know, the Bible is no longer the objective word of God given to man so that you can understand God as he is. Now the Bible has become simply the human record of religious experiences. And so when you study it, all you're studying is people's perception of God. There's no longer absolute truth there. It affected the interpretation of law, as I've said, so that by the 1870s with uh, Justice Oliver Wendell Holmes, you have a shift in the way the Supreme Court and the courts of the land handled the Constitution. It was no longer the primary concern to discover what the framers of the Constitution had in mind, but how it fit today as a living document. And we've seen how that worked itself out in the last, uh, in the last uh, year in the election. And I made the application that, that despite what you might hear, this is where application of taking doctrine from Scripture and applying it to understanding our culture is that what you saw happen in the conflict between the Florida Supreme Court and the Federal Supreme Court is a difference in philosophy of interpretation. That was the core. Now, there may have been problems. You know, Florida may have to clean up a lot of inequities in the way they, they handle uh, voting. You know, there may be all kinds of other issues. That's, that's not the issue here. The issue between... In, in the U.S. Federal Supreme Court ruling is that the Federal Supreme Court was dominated by people who thought that the original intent of the authors of the Constitution determined how, how it was to be interpreted. And the Supreme Court of Florida was dominated by people who thought that it's a living document and it needs to be reinterpreted for each generation. One believed in absolutes, one doesn't. And that changes everything. And that's the essence of the culture war, that's the popular term today, that we have. It is a warfare between those who believe that there are absolutes, even though they may disagree with what they are, and those that believe that everything is ultimately relative. And the more our culture has gotten away from the absolute of 
Christianity and the residual effects, the borrowed capital, as it were, that was left over from the Protestant Reformation, intellectually speaking. Uh, The further we get away from that, the, the more we slip into relativism. And the capital of the Protestant Reformation really dried up about 1960. And since then, we slipped more and more into uh, a relativistic view of philosophy and interpretation until we're now in a system called postmodernism. And we've studied postmodernism a little bit. And in postmodernism, it doesn't matter in interpreting literature, it doesn't matter what, uh, what the author intended but only what the, the meaning the reader assigns. Now, I want to read some interesting things I ran into here. I don't do this a whole lot, but this is instructive. This is from a new book called Hooking Up by Tom Wolfe, which is a collection of essays by Tom Wolfe, who is a very perceptive writer and a tremendous writer. And he is uh, very much against postmodernism and has some uh, uh, interesting comments here. He starts off, he says, and I I want to go into this because I want to show you how this makes a difference in the way our culture is structured. The philosophy departments, history departments, English and comparative literature departments, and at many universities, anthropology, sociology, and even psychology departments are now divided in John Le Hero's delicious terminology into the Young Turks and the Fools. What he means by that, he's going to say there's the young Turks, which are the new young bucks coming up who are all into uh, postmodernism and the old fools who still have some concept of, of absolutes. He says, today the humanities faculties are hives of abstruse doctrines. I mean, these are the schools. These are turning out, remember, they're turning out educators. They're turning out uh, education, I mean, philosophers of education. They're turning out English teachers, history teachers, biology teachers who are teaching your kids in school. Today, the humanities faculties are hives of abstruse doctrines such as structuralism, post-structuralism, post-modernism, deconstruction, reader response theory, co-modification theory, dot, dot, dot. The names vary, but the subject is always the same. Marxism may be dead, but the, and the proletariat has proved helpless. But now we have a new form of Marxism, which he's going to call a Rococo, a Rococo Marxism, elegant. And when he goes on, I won't, you won't pick that up without the context. He says that what he's going to show here is how the powers that be manipulate with poisonous efficiency the very language we speak in order to, oh, this is their view. The view of the deconstructionists is that, that the powers that be, that's the old guard, that's the conservatives, uh, manipulate the very language we speak in order to imprison us in an invisible panopticon, to use the late French post-structuralist uh, Michael Foucault's term. Now, Michael Foucault is one of the form, one of the major thinkers who formulated deconstruction of postmodernism, along with Jacques Derrida. So he's basically saying that the view of modern man in the university is that to think there's any kind of absolute or that words have real meaning is to imprison us in some sort of restricted uh, way of thinking that ultimately they're going to brand with uh, the, the, the big words, sexism, racism, and homophobic. So if you believe in any kind of absolutes, that's where you end up. He goes on, he says, um, he's talking about one of the major major academics in this area by the name of... Um, of uh, Stanley Fish, who is quite influential, and he says about um, about Fish. Fish is a 61-year-old Milton scholar with a Ph.D. from Yale. It's amazing how many of these people came out of Yale. They come out of all the other places too, but a number of them are from Yale, right down the road here. Or he he is a 61-year-old Milton scholar with a Ph.D. from Yale, or or rather a lapsed Milton scholar. He achieved stardom as the Rococo. That's his term that he's developed for this new, new fancy version of Marxism that's being taught under as post-structuralism, post-modernism. Rococo had the English department at Duke and now has been commissioned by the University of Illinois at Chicago for $230,000 a year plus perks to assemble a stable of these stars in a 
proletariat studies, not excluding, he says, the study of, quote, body parts, excretory functions, the sex trade, dildos, bisexuality, transvesticism, and lesbian pornography. Fish said such things with a true Swiftian gusto relishing the inevitable alarm that ensues. So this is what's permeating a lot of campuses today at the intellectual level. On the conceptual level, Fish is best known for his, quote, reader response theory, which holds that literary texts mean nothing in themselves, that meaning is only a mental construct concocted by the reader. Now, that's important. That's what's dominating uh, the literature, I mean, the, the English, uh, English faculties on campus and all the other faculties, that meaning, that, that literary texts mean nothing in themselves, that meaning is only a mental construct concocted by the reader. It is a short step from this premise, Wolf says, from this premise to the argument that the powers that be have had a picnic loading the language with terminology calculated to make you concoct the mental constructs they want you to concoct in order to manipulate your mind. So conservatives are just mind manipulators uh, through some sort of use of absolute meaning of vocabulary. May I offer an arch and perhaps familiar but clear example? Recently I came across a woman at one of our top universities who taught a course in feminist theory and gave her students Fs if they spelled the plural of the female of the species women, W-O-M-E-N on a test or in a paper. She insisted on, quote, women, W-O-M-Y-N. Since the powers that be, at some point far back in the mists of history, had built male primacy into the very language itself by making women, W-O-M-E-N, 60% men, M-E-N. How did the students react? Well, they just shrugged. They, they've long since learned the futility of objecting to this kind of thinking. They just write women, W-O-M-Y-N, and go about the business of grinding out a credit in the course. Now, we laugh at that. This is dominating things. There's a uh, seminary over in Ohio that I have uh, uh, become familiar with where if you use a male pronoun to refer to God, then you automatically fail the course. So you can't refer to God, He. So the translators and most of our Bibles are wrong. In fact, the original writer was wrong. Uh, he goes on, just one other example. The undisputed queen of feminist theory is Judith Butler, a 44-year-old Hegel scholar with, like Fish, a Ph.D. from Yale, who is also known as the diva of queer studies. She is small and not very prepossessing, but graduate students all over the country say diva at the mere mention of her name. A group of them put out a fan magazine called Judy, devoted to chronicling the way she rams home her perform performativity theory of speech and sexual behavior as forms of anarchy. So anyway, the battle goes on, and it is a major major battle at the university level and what is influencing and affecting much thought at the university level on interpretation. And this works itself out throughout our culture and impacts at the highest levels all kinds of things. So that, that to bring it down to our level, these are classrooms where some of you are going, where your children are going to go, where their teachers went. And this is the kind of stuff that is continually taught. It's part of our culture. This is the air we're breathing now. It's influencing the news moderators, the news commentators. It's influencing the judges the, uh, in the judicial system and, and lawyers. This is the battlefield between, this is the real battlefield between conservatism and liberalism. And it's not just in terms of theology, but it's in terms of everything. It is, as, as Thomas Sowell writes in the title of his book, it is a conflict, a vision. It is a totally different way of looking at reality than the way in which we look at reality. So when I, when I spend time talking about interpretation, this is at the core. You know, this may not be punching your buttons in terms of some problem you have at work or some... Uh, some uh, stress in life or adversity or whatever it might be, 
But this is the undergirding issues that are affecting everything that we do. They affect our lawmakers. They are affecting everything. And so, and it affects how any, anybody comes and looks at the, at the text of Scripture and interprets it. Uh, fifth canon of interpretation, and this is what is a major problem in this epistle, and that is that you have to interpret in light of, of theological system. In light of a theological system. Now, you don't take a theological system and impose that on the text. Now, that's exactly what some people do. I've, I think many Reformed theologians are much more guilty of that than anyone else. Some Roman Catholic theologians, they, they've got a system, and now they're going to find it in whatever they read. And I call it ram-cram-and-jam hermeneutics. You're going to ram-cram-and-jam your view into the text no matter what. But we have to understand theology as a system. You know, all theologies are constructed by brilliant men. I mean, Calvin was absolutely brilliant. He was a lawyer before he was a theologian. When he wrote his Institutes of Christian Religion, it went through, uh, I don't know, somewhere about 20 revisions. It started off only being a very short uh, treatise, and it ended up being two volumes long. And as he studied the Word of God, as time went by, he was constructing an understanding of what the Bible said, but it was consistent. That's what a system is. It's categorizing and classifying what the Bible teaches in such a way that, that the, the component parts of your, your theological understanding jive. They, they fit. They meld together so that there is internal consistency. And there are only about, legitimately, only about six or seven consistent theological systems out there. And when you interpret something, you need to be aware of what those theological systems are. For example, in much of Calvinism and in much of Reformed theology, there is the idea that if you are, if you are truly saved, if you have true faith because you were of the elect, if you have true saving faith, it is demonstrated by how you live, by a changed life. And if you don't live a certain way, or if there's no evidence, if there's no fruit production, then obviously you didn't have real saving faith. And that is uh, part of what's called now lordship salvation. And there are many different people who teach lordship salvation. There's some who are reformed. There's some who are dispensationalists. However, if you teach, if you believe in a lordship salvation or a reformed theology. When you come to this epistle, to 1 John, and 1 John starts talking about uh, how you know something like the one who says, I've come to know him and does not keep his commandments is a liar and the truth is not in him. If you think that 1 John is giving tests of salvation, how do you know if you're really saved? Well, if you, if you love your brethren and you're not a liar, then you're really saved. If John is talking about tests of how to determine whether you're saved or not saved, then salvation isn't based on faith alone in Christ alone. That's part of it. But it's also by passing all these various tests in here, like not hating your brother and um, uh, not lying about the sin in your life and various things like that. And that's been the standard Reformed uh, interpretation. And I think it is, without going into all of the detail on this, if you've been here on Wednesday night, you understand the importance in dispensationalism of a distinction between Israel and the church. I think that, you, that the two are related. Now, it would take me a long time to demonstrate that because it gets very abstract and it gets into a lot of history and a lot of interpretation. But fundamentally, those issues are there. And I've demonstrated them um, in a paper that's supposed to be published in Chaper Theological Journal this next year. And uh, by failing to understand these important issues, this is what theology, this is what drives people nuts. This is what theology is. Theology is just not saying, okay, this is what the Bible means. Then if, if it means this, then these are the consequences. If it means that, then that's the consequences. If it means C, then those are the consequences. That's what I do when I sit in my study and I interpret Scripture. You have to be able to think. And what's happened is some people have come out of our camp and want to maintain being dispensationalists and they want to interpret 1 John 1, 1.9 as not meaning that we have to or should even confess our sins. Because since this is the only place in the New Testament, they say, that confessing our sins is mentioned, it must mean something else. And so they want to adopt a non-confession, non-fellowship view without realizing that the only people that adopt a non-confession, non-fellowship view of this text 
are people who believe in uh, Reformed and Covenant theology. There are some other groups. There is a relationship. You can't just adopt X, Y, or Z interpretation of a passage without realizing that it, it affects everything else you say about the Scriptures. And when you have pastors who don't have good formal training, and there are even those who have good formal training who haven't been taught how to think theologically, then what happens is they can't work their way through basic, simple texts of Scripture like this. So you have to interpret and have an understanding of not only theological systems, but also the history of interpretation and how it has affected the passage that you're studying. Now, all of that is, is important to understand why 1 John 5 through 2 should be interpreted a certain way. We come to 1 John 1, 5, and we read, And this is the message we have heard from Him. Now, this is an important word because what we have seen previous to this is an emphasis on message. In 1 John 1, 1, we're told that, that what was from the beginning, what we have heard, what we have seen with our eyes, what we beheld and our hands handled concerning the logos of light. And there we saw that logos in verse 1 did not refer to logos as a technical title of the Lord Jesus Christ, but should be translated in its normal meaning as message. So we read there that we're talking about a message of light. And this is what we proclaim to you in verse 2. And again we have the word proclaim again in verse 3. What we proclaim to you. What do you proclaim? You proclaim a message. Well, what we find is that in verse 4, the proclamation of this message, or verse 3, the proclamation and understanding and application of this message is related to having fellowship. Now, I want to point out something that hit me. I love it when this happens because I don't have time to go work through some things. While I was scraping down the portion of my face that I need to every Sunday morning, I'm staring at the mirror thinking through First John 1, 4 this morning, and I thought, hmm, it doesn't say... Notice, it does not say, we proclaim this to you that you may be in fellowship with us. It doesn't say that. Now, that's the, that's the everyday evangelical verbiage we use all the time. Are you in fellowship with God? Are we in fellowship with each other? We talk about that. It doesn't say that. It says echo, the Greek word to have and to hold. It is a much more active concept. To be in fellowship is a static, passive concept. I'm in fellowship. You know, I'm in the room. I'm in the building. It's, being, it's just being there. And, and this has led to a misunderstanding of the Christian life by some people in our camp because we think if we're in fellowship, certain things automatically happen. It goes along with a mystic view that, that affected Keswick concepts and other concepts of the Christian life that if I'm filled with the Spirit, that the Spirit somehow takes over and makes the hard decisions for me. That when I'm tempted to sin, that, that if, the, if I'm filled with the Spirit, I, I, he, He's just going to take over for me and I'm not going to sin. I'm not going to get angry. I'm not going to get mad. I'm not going to be bitter. I'm not going to be jealous. But I'm not going to worry because I'm filled with the Spirit. I, I, but but then, then we're angry and we sin. We feel that frustration. A lot of people have given up on doctrine because there's just some little subtle nuances here we've missed. Filling by means of the Spirit doesn't mean that the Spirit takes over. It means that the Spirit is consistently influencing us with the doctrine that's in our soul so that we have to make the right decision. But we have to make the right decision. And in fellowship isn't the terminology in these passages. It's half fellowship. It's an active thing. We're enjoying fellowship with God. It's, it's a movement thing. See, see, when we get to 1 John 1, 9, one of the problems that people are trying to address is that there have been those who think that if I just confess my sins that I'll automatically grow. Confession doesn't lead to growth. It can't. Confession just takes you from being in a place where you can't grow to a place where you can grow. It takes you to a, from a place where you're dominated by the sin nature to a place where you're influenced by the Holy Spirit. But you have to respond to the influence of the Holy Spirit by doing something active called walking by means of the Spirit, being led by the Spirit, putting into practice the Word of God. That's where growth takes place. It's not just passive. It's not just if I confess my sin, I'm in fellowship. If I confess my sin, then I can begin to have fellowship. But having fellowship is active. It's like walking. It's like walking in the light, we'll see when we develop verse 6. Walking in the light, walking uh, by the Holy Spirit. It, it is an, it's an active thing. It's taking the Word of God and, and applying it in our lives. So, 
we are told that this is a message, and the result of this message is that we're going to enjoy this active concept of having fellowship. And verse 4 gives us our first purpose statement. I said that when we interpret things, we need to interpret in light of the historical intent. And one of the problems historically, this is why you have to understand theological systems, is that Reformed theologians always go to the end of the book in 1 John 5, where it says, These are written that you might know that you have eternal life. And they take that as the governing purpose for the whole epistle. And others have taken verse 3 as the governing purpose for the whole epistle, that you may have fellowship with us. This introduces a major theme. But guess what? There are other um, purpose statements. For example, in 1 John 2, chapter 3, it says, By this we know that we have come to know him if we keep... um, uh, excuse me, First John 2, 1 says, My little children, I am writing these things to you that you may not sin. That's a second purpose clause. So right now we've got at least three purposes. There's about four purposes in, in the uh, epistle of First John. And each purpose relates to a different section of the epistle. So if you're not interpreting in light of the purpose of that section, you're going to misinterpret and come out with some, some problematic solutions. So we have here the... Uh, clear statement that there is a, a, um, a message that we have to understand. And, the, and what John is saying here, the, the core of that message is a principle that God is light. Now, verse 5 shifts. We've had our first section, 1 John 1, 1 through 4, with our purpose statement that that's related to fellowship. And then he's going to start explaining that, and he's going to explain that in terms of the metaphors of light and darkness in verse 5. Verse 5 is controlled by the purpose statement in verse 1 of chapter 2 that we might not sin. So in order to understand the concept of dealing with sin in our life and getting to a point where we sin less and not more, uh, we have to understand this concept of fellowship and it starts with the person of God. Everything starts with the essence of God. What happens in human viewpoint reasoning is you always start with some aspect of the creation and then try to argue to God. That's always going to cause problems. One, as a believer, you always start with God. And that's the methodology that John has here. And so the core of the message, to understand everything else, we have to understand what it means that God is light. Well, first of all, we see that this is a metaphor. This is a metaphor. Now, what is a metaphor? Going back to high school English and those horrible things we had to learn sometimes, a simile and metaphor are are comparisons. A um, comparison is a state. A stated comparison is a simile. It's as white as snow. It uses the word like or as. If like or as aren't there, it's not a simile. It is white as snow. There's a there's a stated comparison there, and you can look out the window and see just how white snow is. An unstated comparison leaves out the like or the as and just just states that x is y. Although it's not making it's not literally that way. God is not literally light. It is a comparison, and and there's a what we have to understand in any developing an understanding of any metaphor is what is the field of comparison. Any word, I'm going to draw a circle here on the overhead. Any word defines a field of meaning. It has an inherent logic to it. There are certain things that apply to the concept and certain things that don't. A word by itself is an absolute. That's why these deconstructionists are arguing against themselves because the very words they use to state their propositions uh, have to have a certain absolute meaning or they can't even communicate what they're saying. So they're assuming the opposite of what they state in order to communicate what they state. Think about that for your morning devotions this week. So we have the word God, and then we have the concept of light. There are many different things we can say about light. Some things may not apply to God. Some things do apply to God. So we have to come to understand what is the overlap in meaning. And then, then that is what the point that John is making. And how do we understand that? Well, we realize that light is a metaphor for God has a very ancient tradition, both in terms of the Bible and in terms of false religions. The uh, dichotomy of light and darkness was popular in 
uh, Platonic thought. It became a major doctrine in Gnostic thought and in the uh, dualistic thinking of, uh, of the uh, Persian Zoroastrianism. So you can go to Zoroastrianism to find out something about it, but that's not going to help us because that's not John's frame of reference. You can go to Platonism and find certain things, but that's not going to help us because that's not John's frame of reference. John's frame of reference is the Old Testament. So in order to understand what he means by light, we have to go back and look at the Old Testament. So that brings us, in terms of the doctrine of light, to point number one. Light translates the Hebrew word or and the Greek word phos, both of which mean, in terms of straight literal meaning, they both mean light, brilliance, brightness, illumination. They also can refer to sunlight, daylight, torchlight, firelight, or other forms of light. So they mean light, brilliance, brightness, illumination. That's the literal sense of the word. These words are used metaphorically for a number of different concepts. They're used for life. In him was light, and his light was the life. In him was life, and his life was the light of men. John 1, 4. Uh, So there's a deep connection between light, in reference to God, between light and life. So light is used metaphorically for life. The, we think about, describe the death of someone. We saw the lights go out in their eyes. Um, justice, righteousness, judgment. The presence of judgment in the tribulation period is called a time of darkness. So darkness and the coming of the Lord is referred to in terms of light, the ending of judgment. So light and darkness are, are related to judgment. The glory of God is clothed in light. We sang about that in our first hymn this hour. A truth. Light represents truth and divine revelation, that which comes forth from God. So metaphorically, light means life, justice, righteousness, judgment, the glory of God, truth, and divine revelation. And since they're all related by the word light, there must be connections between those concepts. There must be connections between those concepts. Now, that's not always easy for us to to fathom. What is the connection between life and truth? But ultimately, in God, they are related, so there are points of application from this that that are going to work itself out as we unpack what John means by this. So light has literal meanings in terms of uh, physical illumination, physical brilliance, brightness, daylight, sunlight, torchlight, moonlight, firelight. Also, it was used metaphorically for life, justice, righteousness, judgment, glory of God, truth, and divine revelation. Second point, light is used also as a metaphor for the kingdom of God and the plan of God in contrast to darkness, which is used as a metaphor for the kingdom of Satan, carnality, sin, and evil. Light is used as a metaphor for the kingdom of God. It is all that God is and impacts everything that He has. So it's used as a metaphor for His kingdom and His plan. And it is also used, and the opposite darkness is used as a metaphor for the kingdom of Satan, the domain of Satan, carnality, sin, and evil. For example, in Proverbs 2.13, we're told, from those who leave the paths of uprightness, to walk in the ways of darkness. The paths of uprightness are the instructions of Scripture, the way of wisdom in the Proverbs, if you understand it contextually, which is the wisdom is the teaching of God. So uh, to walk opposite that is according to Satan's plan and procedure, which is described then as the ways of darkness. Second verse is Proverbs 4.19. The way of the wicked is like darkness. There we have a simile. It's a stated comparison. It is like darkness. If it was a metaphor, he would have just said the way of the wicked is darkness. Both would be true. It's just a different figure of speech. They do not know over what they stumble. So darkness is related here to knowledge and the lack of knowledge, specifically ignorance. They don't know. So darkness is used here also uh, uh, to symbolize the ignorant 
path of the unbeliever because he is living his life in rejection of doctrine and without paying attention to truth. Acts 26.18 states to open their eyes. This is the purpose of the gospel ministry, to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light, from the dominion of Satan to God. So there's our parallel. Darkness is related to the dominion of Satan. Light is related to the kingdom of God. In order that they might receive forgiveness of sins and inheritance among those who have been sanctified by faith in me. And that is parallel to Colossians 1.13. He delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son. So this is what happens at the point of salvation. Remember this. If you're going to be able to understand what happens in this next verse, you have to pay attention to this. At the point of salvation, we are transferred from the domain of darkness into the domain of light. We're in the domain of light. Now, the problem is, interpretively, when we get to verse 6, we're going to say, if we have fellowship with Him, and yet walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth, then there are those that will say that walking in the light is tantamount to being saved. Walking in darkness is tantamount to not being saved. And that leads to... this is See, there's two ways of looking at this thing. And if you don't have the right overall view of the, of the epistle, then when you get to these phrases, you're going to have problems. We are positionally in light. But it doesn't make any sense whatsoever to tell somebody if walking in the light is tantamount to being in the light, then it doesn't make any sense to tell anybody to stop walking in darkness. To tell a believer to stop walking in darkness. And the very fact that you have commands to believers to walk in the light presupposes that they can walk in darkness. So being in the light is not the same as walking in the light. There's a difference between position in Christ and the day-to-day experience of our life. And that's where I'm going with this. But we have to understand that basing it on these passages. And these passages are talking about our position in Christ. Third point. Light is frequently a metaphor for God's essence. It is frequently used as a metaphor for God's essence. For example, light is His garment in Psalm 104, verse 2. His presence is indicated by light when He appears to Moses in Exodus 13:21. Also think of the uh, burning bush. He, um, it's, his presence is indicated by light in Daniel 9:12 and Daniel 2:22, Habakkuk 3:4. Psalm 4, 6, Psalm 44, 3, and Psalm 89, 15. Some other passages that, that indicate this are, for example, uh, Psalm 104, verse 2. Covering thyself with light as with a cloak. So he is viewed as covered in light, stretching out heavens like a tent curtain. Exodus 13, 21. And the Lord was going before them in a pillar of cloud by day, to lead them on the way, and in a pillar of fire by night to give them light, that they might travel by day and by night. Now, the essence of God, we remember the essence of God in terms of ten foundational attributes. Now, this is important. You're going to get sick of hearing this from me. These are foundational attributes. There are... I don't know how many, I haven't counted them up, but let's say, let's just say dozens and dozens of attributes ascribed to God in the Scriptures. He's good, He's wise, He's loving. All kinds of attributes, all kinds of characteristics ascribed to God in the Scriptures. But not all of them are foundational attributes. Not all of them are foundational attributes. You need to understand that. Love is a foundational attribute to God. Now, love is a transitive verb. Oh, there I go with my grammar again. Love is a transitive verb. A transitive verb means that by the very nature of language, the verb demands an object. Now, if God is eternal, and if God is love, then for God to be love throughout all eternity, there had to be an object for His love. Right? Otherwise, language doesn't mean anything anymore, and we're, we might as well go become postmodern, poststructuralist ad, ad nauseums. But God exists as a trinity. That means that 
God the Father love is eternal. God the Son is eternal. God the Holy Spirit is eternal. God the Father loves God the Son throughout all eternity. There's an eternal, perfect object to the love of God throughout all eternity. This is why Trinitarian monotheism, which is what we believe in, that God is a trinity, God is one, but He exists three in person, one in essence, that God, we believe in a Trinitarian monotheism, that's why this works. Because if you're a Unitarian, it doesn't work because if God is really love, if you believe that God is a loving God like the liberal Unitarian Universalists do, then God is dependent on His creatures to be loving. And if God's dependent on anything to be who and what He is, then He can't be God anymore. By definition, God must be independent. Same thing happens with Islam. This is, works itself out differently in Islam. They claim abstractly that Allah is love, but there's no love in the system. There's no love in the way they work. it works itself out in their, the way they treat one another and their relationships. It's just verbiage. It's not actuality. So, we have to distinguish between core attributes and expressions of attributes. Grace is an attribute of God. This is why grace cannot be an attribute and only an expression. Because grace, by definition, is unmerited favor or unearned blessing. Therefore, the object of grace is always something less than God, something undeserving. And that involves a creature. If grace is a primary attribute of God then God would be dependent upon creatures to be gracious and you fall into that same trap. So that's why you have some things that are said God is gracious, but He isn't great. That's not a primary attribute. So these are the primary attributes. God is sovereign, God is righteousness, and God is justice. Now, these are two sides of the same coin. Righteousness is the absolute standard of God's character. In Greek, both these words are, are the same, have the same root in the root decay, uh, which finds its form in dikaiao, dikaiosune, uh, which are translated both righteousness and justice depending on its orientation and context. Righteousness is the standard of his character. Justice is the application of that standard. Then God is love, and he is eternal. There is no beginning and no end with God. God is omniscient. That means He knows all the knowable. He knows all the possible, all the potential. He knows all the actual. There is nothing that God does not know about. There is nothing that God is unaware of. God knows everything. God is omnipresent. That means God is not limited by space. Eternal life means He's not limited by time. Omnipresence means He's not limited by space. You have to watch your definition. If you say omnipresent means God is present to every aspect of His creation, then you've just made creation an integral part of the character of God. So you have to be careful. Omnipresent means that God is not limited by space. He is non-spatial. In fact, God created space and time. Omnipotent means that there is nothing that God, that, that, that God is able to do everything He intends to do. There is nothing that God uh, is unable to do with relation to His plan. He is able to accomplish everything He intends to accomplish. It doesn't mean that God can do everything because God cannot lie. God cannot become non-Trinitarian. God cannot hate. God is love. Okay? God is veracity, which means He is truth. And God is immutability, which means God never changes. So that's the essence of God. We will refer back to that many, many times. I had that drilled into me and memorized, I think, by the time I was seven years old in Sunday school class. And that's what we intend to do with our uh, kids downstairs is to inculcate this kind of things in them. It builds their vocabulary. They'll go to school and impress everybody. They'll know what immutability is. Their teachers probably don't even know what immutability is. Psalm 142. Covering thyself with light is with a cloak, stretching out heaven like a tent curtain. Exodus 13.21. Let's go to Habakkuk 3.4. His radiance is like the sunlight. He has rays flashing from his hand, and there is the hiding of his power. So, so it reflects his glory is like light. Psalm 4, 6, many are saying, who will show us any good? Lift up the light of thy countenance upon us, O Lord. Talking about his, his apparition, his whole character. Psalm 44, 3, for by their own sword they did not possess the land, and their own arm did not save them. By thy right hand and thy arm and the light of thy presence. That is the illumination of God's character. 
for thou didst favor them. And then Psalm 89, 15, How blessed are the people who know the joyful sound, O Lord. They walk in the light of thy countenance. So that's just the first three points. We have 12 points in all to cover on the doctrine of light. We'll finish that up next Sunday morning. I think by now you understand interpretation. I didn't want to hit you with all of that at one time, because that will bore some of you. But interpretation is the key, and we have to correctly interpret this metaphor. Once we correctly interpret God as light, then we're going to be able to understand what it means to walk in the darkness and walk in the light, as He Himself is in the light, and what it means to have fellowship. Notice in verse 7, we're going to run into that phrase again, not being in fellowship, static, but having or enjoying fellowship with one another on the basis of doctrine, because this is all based on an understanding of a message. So we will come back and develop this further next time, because this is crucial to understanding this chapter, with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we do thank you again that we have the light of your word that illuminates the darkness of our thinking. There's been programmed so much by human viewpoint thoughts of our culture around us, and that by looking at your word, we are indeed transformed in our thoughts. Father, we pray that if there's anyone here this morning that uh, is unsure of their salvation, uncertain of their eternal destiny, that they would be challenged with the reality and the truth of your grace this morning and realize that there is nothing they can do to save themselves, but it is based exclusively on what you have done through the substitutionary death of Jesus Christ on the cross. Right now, right where you are, you can have eternal life. All you need to do is believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Believe that He died on the cross as a substitute for your sins, that He was buried and rose again the third day, and you will have eternal salvation that no one can ever take away from you. Father, we pray that those of us who have studied Your Word and believed in the Gospel, that we might be challenged by what we have learned, our appreciation of Your Word and the the depths of it might be expanded, and that we might be able to also to look at the culture around us uh, with more discerning eyes. We pray this now in Christ's name. Amen.